1: Welcome to this evening's Roundtable. My name is Carl Johnson. I'm the director of Chesterton House, the Center for Christian Studies here at Cornell, and one of the co-sponsors of the Roundtable series, along with the Graduate Christian Fellowship. And if you're interested in more information on either organization afterwards, uh, it'll be easy enough to find a couple of us uh, who represent each of those organizations to find more information. Uh, The Roundtable is a series where we bring speakers into Cornell a few times each semester to address a a wide variety of topics. And uh, it's our privilege this evening to have with us uh, Professor David Skill. Uh, Professor Skill is a professor at the uh, law school at the University of Pennsylvania, where he has taught for several years after receiving his education at the University of North Carolina and also the University of Virginia. Um, He teaches a number of courses, is very popular with students, has won a number of teaching awards um, and has a a deep interest in the relationship between uh, Christianity and legal theory and has published a couple of articles and monographs on that topic, two of which are available as off prints uh, in the back of the room after the lecture. Um, Also in the back of the room, I will mention we have a small book table set out with a number of books in the general area of law and public life um, and some specifically on the area of Christianity and legal theory that we've pulled from the shelf in the Chesterton House resource room just to let you know what resources we have there. And if any of them are of strong interest to you and you're interested in purchasing those, um, we can take care of that as well and we'll just replace it at our library. So those books back there are available either for browsing or for purchase. I will also mention that um, Professor Skeel has written uh, a few books, one of them uh, being Icarus in the Boardroom, The Fundamental Flaws in Corporate America and Where They Came From. And the topic of this evening's lecture God's law and our law, the kingdom of heaven in America, is a uh, sort of a trial run for his next book. Uh, this is this is the topic of a book that he would like to to work on, and um, so we're we're the guinea pigs, and uh, he'll try out his ideas on us, and we'll see how they go over. So please join me in welcoming Professor David Skill.
0: put this yeah. here. I'll say it out loud. Thank you, Carl. And thank you all for being here to be my guinea pigs. That's uh, my way of saying uh, be forgiving about the ideas uh, here. And I'll, I'll make a couple more comments that will bring out uh, sort of the nature of the book that I have, um, have in mind. One other else thing I'll say before I get going, and that is um, I, I almost did a sh- put together a sheet to give to you. My one self-plug I want to make is I do a blog on Christianity and culture and politics and things of that sort with, um, with somebody who's really smart and really interesting. And even if, they, if I completely bore you, you'll want to go to this blog because my co-author is so good. Um, <laughs> the blog is called Less, uh, Less Than the Least which is a biblical citation. We'll see if we'll have a door prize for anybody who can name where that comes from. And the site of the blog is it's www. And there are a couple of ways you can get there. The easiest way is lessleast. L E S S L E S L E A S T less least dot com. Um, I'd love for you all to go to it to sort of join in the conversation and, and, uh, Talk about some of the kinds of issues we'll be talking about tonight, but some different issues as well. Um, I have about 50 minutes of prepared talk here. I don't usually do this, um, but I'm kind of going to be reading it. um, So I apologize for that a little bit. I'll try to read. I'll try to go through it fast. Um, It's a little bit on the long side, I know. if I can think of a way to make it interesting, I'll do that uh, as we go as we go along. And I, I don't want to. I want to invite you all to uh, to jump in as we go through. And I'll do the, I'll invite you again in just a minute. But just to let you know where where we're going, I have a talk um, that I will read through, hopefully in a somewhat animated way. And this is it's really an overview of a book that I'm planning to start, uh, Lord willing, writing this fall. What I'd like to talk about tonight is the relationship between Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, and American politics and law over the last century. How have evangelicals and other Christians influenced the regulation of morals and other issues? How have evangelicals viewed their relationship to law and politics? And how has this changed over time? And for those of us who are ourselves evangelicals, Where might things be headed, and should we be happy about how things have worked out? Because this story is in many respects a story about how the Sermon on the Mount has been understood in American life, I propose to tell the the historical story through the lens of this most remarkable of biblical texts. This will require us first to start with the Sermon on the Mount itself and to consider some of the kinds of issues on which Christians have differed at different points in time and on which different Christian groups have often differed even at a particular point in time. We'll then embark on a rapid historical tour of the last century or so, which will focus on a number of once-famous Christian leaders whose names are probably unfamiliar to most of you. One of my secret missions, both tonight and in other talks of this sort and in the book, is to make a few of these people a little more well-known once again. The first two, from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, are the populist leader and three-time Democratic presidential nominee. Anybody know who this is? Very good. William Jennings Bryan. Um, And the second is, I'll do one more little quiz, leader of the social gospel movement of the late 19th century, early 20th century. That's even harder. Walter Rauschenbusch, this is good. Now, I know where the uh, I know where the ringers are hiding. So I, I know uh one of the benefits of talking really long is you can sort of preempt questions. And uh we all ask questions all though. No, that's not, that's not the kind. I want the hard questions to come because that will that's what will help me. So the two people I'll talk about in the beginning are William Jennings Bryan and Walter Rauschenbusch. After talking about Brian and Rauschenbusch, we'll consider the crisis in American evangelicalism and fundamentalism in the 1920s, the almost complete lack of influence of Christianity on legal scholarship during the same era, the influence of Reinhold Niebuhr, a prominent theologian who had a major impact on Martin Luther King, among others, in the middle of the century, and the rise of the religious right in our own era. I'll conclude by offering my view of how we might think about the Sermon on the Mount in our own law and politics and in our own lives. It's perhaps worth noting, as we've already been talking about, that this is the first test run for some ideas I hope to start developing into a book this fall. So no doubt some of the things I'll talk about will seem crazy or indefensible or perhaps simply wrong. Please feel, feel free to jump in at any point with questions. Uh, you can shout me down if you need to uh, um, uh, or whatever. As we go through and I, as I understand it, we'll have a little bit of time for questions at the end. And then for those of you who can stay, we'll get together and talk and then we'll have much more time um, for questions. OK, let's start then with the Sermon on the Mount, with the Sermon on the Mount that comprises chapters five, six and seven ...of the Gospel according to Matthew. Um, just to, to pretend that we're a little interactive for a minute or two more before I just start reading, who can name a verse or a passage or a teaching from the Sermon on the Mount? Just to get the biblical passage that's going to be the foundation of the things that I'm talking about into 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 view. Hmm the beatitudes are what began the sermon on the mount blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn any other things from the sermon on the mount blessed are the poor blessed are the poor. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit actually in the in the Luke's version of the beatitudes it just says blessed are the poor which is one of the interesting things about the two versions of the beatitudes any other hmm? Seek ye first the kingdom of uh, uh, the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Uh, strike one cheek, offer up the other. One of the, impo- the seemingly impossible commands of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. One more? Any? Has the golden pardon? City on the hill um, um, cannot be hid. Is in the beginning of the of the. Um, Sermon on the Mount, that actually is one of my, that was when I joined the church I'm a member of, that was the the verse that was given to me as my life verse, and it kind of haunts me, because the idea is you're supposed to be um, a source of light, um, and a source of light that is seen. I don't always feel like I live um, up to that, another one of the themes that is um, recurrent as people work through the Sermon on the Mount. To radically oversimplify, the Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus going up on a hill with his disciples, then giving a sermon with a lot more points in it than the three points of most traditional sermons. I like to think of the Sermon on the Mount as the equivalent of a stump speech, with portions that Jesus, no doubt, gave in his, gave in his teachings through all of Samaria. The sermon begins with the Beatitudes, as we've said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, then shifts to the so-called antimonies, where Jesus says that murder includes not only killing someone, but even anger, that even to look at someone with lustful intent is adultery, and that we should turn the other cheek, as mentioned, when we are slapped. In the next chapter, we find Jesus' teaching about not sounding a trumpet when we give to the needy, we find the Lord's Prayer and his an admonition not to be anxious about anything. Chapter 7 begins with the warning, judge not that you, uh, not, that you be not judged. It also includes the golden rule that we should love, uh, love others as we love ourselves and the parable about the wise man who built his house on the rock. When Matthew tells us at the end of chapter 7 that the crowds who heard these teachings were astonished, most of us, even 2,000 years later, can understand how they felt, because we're astonished too. Almost every verse in the sermon has been interpreted in different ways at one time or another. But for our purposes, I'd like to focus on three issues in particular, and to use them to identify the shifts in Christian perspectives on law and politics in the last century or so. First is the question Who is Jesus? One sees evidence in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is the savior of God's people so that he is associated with salvation, that he is the true king for whom Israel had been waiting so that he is associated with justice, and that he is a teacher or role model unlike any the world had ever seen. At different times, Christians have emphasized one or more of these roles and de-emphasized others. The story of Christian influence on American law is, in important part, the story of these shifting emphases. The second question is, what is the Church? Or in particular, what are the boundaries of the Church? By this, I mean, how should the Church and the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount relate to the larger society? If you look closely at the Sermon on the Mount, You'll notice that Jesus begins by speaking specifically to his disciples, to, to those who have committed their lives to him, but at the end we're told that large crowds are listening to his teaching. The appearance of those crowds raises, in my view, the question of whether the teachings are met solely for the church or in some way for the world as well. American Christians have answered this question in very different ways, from sects like the Amish, who separate themselves almost completely from the world, to those who seek a holy Christian society. The final issue is what implications Christians' understandings of Jesus and the role of the church have for American politics and law. The lens through which I propose to consider Christian influence on American law over the past century, then, is Jesus, church, and law as derived from an understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. We begin in the late 19th and early 20th century with two figures who could hardly have less in common, William Jennings Bryan and Walter Rauschenbusch, who were the best-known representatives of the two most important Christian movements of the late 19th century. Bryan was the nation's most famous evangelical, a three-time Democratic nominee for president, known in his early years as the boy orator of the Platte, that being the Platte River in Nebraska, where he was from, who held very conservative views about the nature of the Bible, and who had little time for elite uh, elite intellectuals and Ivy League universities like this one. Rauschenbush Cornell will come back up uh, before we're done. Uh, Rauschenbusch, on the other hand, was the best-known representative of the social gospel, an optimistic, theologically liberal, or modernist, as it's usually described, movement that pr- promoted progressive reform. He was as deeply intellectual as Brian was skeptical of intellectuals having studied theology in Germany with several leading German philosopher-theologians, and and then having served for many years on the faculty of Rochester Seminary. As a revealing side note, or at least I think it's revealing, he also was the grandfather of the American philosopher Richard Rorty. Very interesting connection, it seems um, to me. Bryan's and Rauschenbusch's views of the Sermon on the Mount were as different, as you might expect, from two men with such different backgrounds and orientations. The Jesus Brian saw in the Sermon on the Mount was first and foremost a savior. Even at the height of his political years, Brian never missed an opportunity to preach the gospel. The Jesus Rauschenbusch saw in the Sermon on the Mount, on the other hand, was less a savior than a teacher or role model a source of instruction on ethics and the proper characteristics of society. For Rauschenbusch, the kingdom of heaven, which is frequently mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, was principally now. The kingdom, he wrote, quote, means a growing perfection in the collective life of humanity, in our laws, in the customs of society, in the institutions for education, and for the administration of mercy." Like the other social gospelers, he was often criticized for downplaying Christ's atonement, Christ as Savior, um, Savior for our sins. Despite their remarkable differences and their leadership of movements that would soon be deeply at odds, Brian and Rauschenbusch were quite fond of each other and held very similar views about the major political and legal issues of the time. Both were avid supporters of prohibition. This was one of the last issues on which Brian's conservative, uh, theologically conservative, not politically conservative, Brian's theologically conservative evangelical followers and and Rauschenbusch's theological modernists would join common cause. Each also excoriated John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, and the giant corporate trust, the huge corporations uh, of the era as a threat to American life footnote on this, all of the complaints that the oil companies are getting right now about how terrible they are, how they're gouging all of us, these are not new complaints. Uh, these were the things that Roushan and Bush and Bryan were complaining about for slightly different reasons, but not wildly different reasons in the late 19th century. How could two such different leaders end up in the same place? The answer, I think, or I should say an answer, is in part that the Jesus they saw, they each saw in the Sermon on the Mount, wasn't quite so different as Brian's emphasis on Christ as Savior and Rauschenbusch's emphasis on Christ the ethical guide, which suggests much more than current evangelicals. Brian often also strongly emphasized Christ's example, and both Brian and Rauschenbusch took seriously Christ's role as King or more precisely, his role as a judge who would vindicate the cause of the poor and the powerless. Bryan's and Rauschenbusch's similarities on the second issue, the nature and boundaries of the church, were even more striking. Both had imbibed the ethos of a time when Protestant and American were used almost interchangeably. And many judges still insisted that Christianity was part of the common law, that Christianity was in the law, even if the law didn't say so explicitly. Both were more optimistic than we can imagine today about the prospects for transforming the nation. I suppose we're a little optimistic now because everybody's going to change everything. Uh, but they were really, uh, they were really optimistic. Uh, you get to choose your maverick who's going to change things or your fresh new post-political person who's going to change things. In um, the terms I have been using both saw the boundaries between the church and American culture as extremely permeable. The church would lead the culture. Under the warm breath of religious faith, all social institutions become plastic, as Rauschenbusch put it. So the church would lead the culture, but life in the church and throughout all of American culture would be transformed in very much the same way. Workers and the poor would be protected, the influence of the powerful held in check. For both Ryan, Brian and Rauschenbusch, the transformation would include legal reform designed to protect common men and women. The corporate trust would be broken up. There would be labor laws, uh, minimum, or minimum work week laws passed. Alcohol and gambling would be prohibited. All of these changes um, would be made through the law and could be made through the law in the view of both Brian and Rauschenbusch. This alliance between traditional evangelicals and theological modernists was always awkward, but it came under impossible strain between roughly 1917 and 1925. The devastation of World War I made the dream of perpetual progress and of an enlightened Christian nation that influenced both Bryan's and Rauschenbusch's thinking seem hopelessly naive. They also were victims of their own success, Brian especially. Although prohibition was enacted in 1919, it proved to be a colossal failure, ultimately undermining the very norms against drinking that it was intended to promote. The breaking point, the event that would make alliances between future Bryans and Rausch and impossible for decades, was... I'll just stop since I've been reading so much. Any guess as to what the key event, nineteen twenty five? The Scopes trial uh transformed American religion, really transformed American politics um, in a lot of ways. Scopes trial in nineteen twenty five. Most of you no doubt remember at least a little bit about the trial. Tennessee a Tennessee teacher was tried for violating a state statute that prohibited the teaching of evolution. The legendary trial lawyer, Clarence Darrow, defended the teacher, making a mockery of Brian and Brian's biblical defense of the Tennessee law. What people often forget when they think about Brian's campaign against Darwinism is that he was less worried about the general theory than about its advocates' tendency to drift into social Darwinism, to shift from the scientific version to the social version, and into the devaluing of human life. The biggest example of this was the eugenics movement, which came straight out of social Darwinism. But in the wake of the ridicule fundamentalists received throughout the trial, and then of Brian's death shortly afterwards, evangelicals and fundamentalists, rejected the modernists altogether and turned resolutely inward, saying good riddance to American politics and culture for the next several decades. And for a footnote on this, you'll notice I'm using evangelical and fundamentalist kind of interchangeably here. If folks want to talk about the difference between the two of them, we can talk about that later. The 1920s and 30s was a point when those terms were very much in flux, and they were they were in the process of shifting um, their meaning and exactly who they were applying to. You may have noticed that I've been talking about the Christian influence on American politics and law, but I haven't said a word about law schools or legal scholarship. This is completely out of character, you may think. If you've ever known a law professor, you know that we can't resist talking about ourselves and our blogs um, and our kind. There's a reason I haven't said anything about law professors and legal scholarship. During the period I'm now talking about, there was almost no Christian presence in legal scholarship, at least in the elite law schools and the elite law journals. Christian perspectives had completely disappeared. I've written about this development in some detail in the the article that we've got. I think we've got it back there. We've got it up here, and you're welcome to take a copy if you're interested. And I won't dwell on it here other than to quickly note that there seem to be two major reasons for the disappearance of Christian legal scholarship. The first is that sweeping reforms in higher education in the late 19th century had the effect of pushing religious perspectives out. And this is something George Marsden has written a lot about. There was a concerted effort to make education more objective and scientific. Sectarian religion was viewed as inconsistent with this and was increasingly excluded from scholarly study. Cornell, in fact, this is the second reference to Cornell, was founded on precisely these principles. The second factor is the one I alluded to a moment ago. Although the extent of evangelical anti-intellectualism has often been exaggerated, evangelicals saw ivory tower, Ivy League intellectuals as the opposition, as the other. During the same period when the elite legal journals were uninterested in or hostile to Christian perspectives, evangelicals were not making much of an effort to break down the barriers. And Brian is an important forerunner of this tendency in evangelicalism. As a result, for much of the 20th century, even as the number of alternative perspectives began to proliferate in the legal literature, there were simply no Christian perspectives to be found. Any Christian influence on the law was necessarily coming from elsewhere. For the purposes of my story, the most important Christian spokesman in the mid-20th century was Reinhold Niebuhr. Schooled in the German Reformed Church in the early 20th century, Niebuhr began as a pastor in Detroit, then spent much of his career at Union Seminary in New York. Although he was a socialist in his youth, he became a staunch defender of democracy and would become a leading advocate of so-called realist foreign policy during the Cold War era after World War II, and he was ultimately a prominent public figure, an advisor to several several presidents, and and quite well-known. I think he was on the cover of Time at one point. In the debate between evangelicals and theological modernists, Niebuhr was squarely on the modernist side. His view of the Bible had very little in common with Bryant's. He was initially identified with the social gospel movement but he subjected Rauschenbusch and the other social gospelers to withering criticism, attacking them for their their optimism and for what he believed was a naive failure to appreciate the pervasiveness of sin. Niebuhr's interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount was central to his thinking. Niebuhr believed that the ethical commands of the Sermon on the Mount were impossible. When Jesus says that murder includes not just killing another person, but being angry with them, and that even so little as looking at a woman with lustful intent is adultery, he is, according to Niebuhr, quote, paradoxically extending the law to the point of its abrogation. Drawing on an influential interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount by Albert Schweitzer, Niebuhr believed that these teachings as well as the command that Jesus' disciple be perfect as their heavenly father is perfect and live according to the golden rule, were designed only for Jesus' own time and were based on a mistaken belief that he would soon return. This did not mean to Niebuhr that the teachings were irrelevant. They remain an ideal to be taken seriously, in Niebuhr's view, but they are chastened by our recognition of the effects of contingency and sin. You'll have picked up that sin is a big thing with Niebuhr, um, and in my view, rightly so. This is the strongest part of his theology, in my opinion. Only a final harmony of life with life in love, which is the ethical commands of the Sermon on the Mount, can be the ultimate norm of our existence, Niebuhr wrote in a book called The Nature and Destiny of Man. Yet man's actual history, he said, is subject to contingency and necessity and is corrupted by his sinful efforts to escape and to deny his dependence and his involvement in finiteness. In the terms I've been using, that Jesus Niebuhr saw in the Sermon on the Mount, can perhaps be best seen as a teacher role model in the church, in the context of the church, at the local level, and a king in the world more generally. Although Niebuhr believed that an ethic of love is sometimes approximated in the context of a family or church, he believed that the effects of sin made this impossible at the societal level. His most famous book was a book called Moral Man, Immoral, and Immoral Society, which makes this point in in great detail. Niebuhr dismissed the optimistic belief of the social gospelers and of liberal Protestants more generally as sentimentality. For society, Niebuhr argued, the ultimate objective must be justice. Society must strive for justice, he said, even if it is forced to use means such as self-assertion, resistance, coercion, and perhaps resentment, which cannot gain the moral sanction of the most sensitive spirit. Although although this might seem to suggest that lawmakers should use laws to achieve this justice, Niebuhr was pessimistic about how much the law can do. He was pessimistic about everything, um, except force. He was not pessimistic about force. Um, Not only can, quote, no law do justice to the complexities of motive, which express themselves in the labyrinthine depths of man's interior life. I think this means that law can't capture our heart. Um, um, Where was I? I'm getting as bad as John McCain. I can't even read my own notes, not my own notes. Um, But law cannot effectively restrain evil because the law itself can be used to further injustice. Niebuhr thus differentiated the roles of the church and the world much more sharply than either Bryan or Rauschenbusch in the social Gospelers. Although it should be said that Niebuhr did not focus a great deal on the church as distinguished from other local-level community organizations. In the book, I will in the book, if the book is written, as uh, <laughs> Lord willing, it will be. I will have a chapter on Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, which drew deeply and explicitly on Rauschenbusch and especially Niebuhr. I'll also have a chapter about um, some fascinating developments, particularly in the scholarly, philosophical, and legal literature um, within Catholicism. Several, uh, the writings of a number of Catholic philosophers and theologians and their battle with Oliver Wendell, or oh, the followers of Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's a very, very prominent Supreme Court justice and legal um, theorician as well in the middle of the 20th century, right, right during and after World War II. So I'll, I'll talk about these. I'll be whole chapters about this in the book. If anybody wants to ask questions about this, either about how do Catholics fit into this or how does the civil rights movement fit into this, I'd be happy to talk about those either in our brief question period or in our more lengthy question period later. But for now, I'd like to move to the rise of the religious right starting in the 1970s. The prehistory of the religious right can be found in a handful of early leaders who insisted that evangelicals needed to re-engage the culture. As I was talking about a few minutes ago, evangelicals and fundamentalists disappeared from about 1925, really almost into the 1970s, although things were percolating before the 1970s. Carl Henry, one of these leaders, called for an end to what he called, quote, Evangelicalism's Embarrassing Divorce from a World Social Program. Evangelicals, he wrote, must offer a formula for a a new world mind with spiritual ends, involving evangelical affirmations in political, economic, sociological, and educational realms, and both on the local level and internationally. The early leaders of evangelicals social and political activism, who included Henry, a Boston pastor named Harold Akinga and Billy Graham, founded a series of important evangelical institutions, including the National Association of Evangelicals in 1942, Fuller Seminary in 1947, and Christianity Today, the flagship flagship journal of evangelicalism in 1957. But it was not until the 1970s that evangelicals returned to American politics in earnest. The most obvious reason for this was the handing down of Roe v. Wade in 1973, although abortion did not become the signal evangelical issue until several years later. In fact, abortion was a Catholic issue um, until well into the 1970s. Other factors included the IRS challenge, to the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University because of its racial discrimination, the fight over the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s, and the early battles over gay rights, the most famous of them involving Anita Bryant, um, uh, who a once-famous singer who was in a lot of commercials where she said, a day without orange juice is like a day without sunshine, um, This is how she she concluded her career. This is when I was young. Most of y'all here were uh, were younger than young um, at that point. Um, Within a few years, Jerry Falwell had founded the Moral Majority. That was 1979. And then a couple years after that, Pat Robertson launched the Christian Coalition. The rest, as they say, is history. Although we tend to think of the culture war's issues when we think of the religious right in American politics and law, It's important to remember that Cold War anti-communism, the fight against godless communism, as it was often put, was a hugely important part of the evangelical re-engagement. The depth of the ties between evangelicals and the Republican Party would not have been possible were it not for this common commitment to promoting democracy and keeping communism at bay. Footnote on this, there's a very interesting new book about Bill Bright and Campus Crusade, um, major evangelical uh, university organization that makes this point very, very well and in, in much detail. It's interesting to note that contemporary evangelicals have a lot in common with Reinhold Niebuhr in this regard. I'm tempted to say that we have more in common with Niebuhr than with William Jennings Bryan, our evangelical predecessor. But it's probably more accurate to say that the evangelical reemergence looks like an odd marriage of Brian and Niebuhr. When evangelical pastors read the Sermon on the Mount, they tend, like Niebuhr, though for very different reasons, to view Christ's teachings as impossible. None of us can avoid being angry or looking at another person with a glimmer of lust, or simply turn the other cheek when we are slapped. But evangelicals believe that the answer to this is Jesus himself. Only in him can we find salvation and forgiveness of the sinfulness that the Sermon on the Mount reveals. The impossibility of living up to God's dictates drives us into Jesus' arms. The Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount is, for contemporary evangelicals, as with Brian, primarily a savior. As evangelicals look out into the world, however, their Jesus becomes a rather different Jesus. Once again, as with Niebuhr, the principal theme of evangelicals' recent political efforts has been justice and the policing of sin. The evangelical case against abortion is often framed, somewhat surprisingly it seems in my view, in terms of justice, justice for the unborn. Evangelicals have also been among the leading proponents of stiff penalties for drug offenders and other criminals. Unlike with Niebuhr, who was pessimistic about how much could be done with the law, evangelicals have been remarkably optimistic about how much progress can be made through legislation, at least in the sense that our working assumption seems to be that law is coextensive with morality. If a behavior is sinful, the reasoning goes, it should be made illegal. The irony in this stance is that it applies a completely different standard to the larger society than we apply to ourselves and our churches. In church, we recognize that the law can't save us, that salvation comes only through Christ. But we sometimes forget this when we make our way into the outer world. We act as if the law is the solution to every problem. This isn't unique to evangelicals. This is an American tendency, but I think it is a tendency that evangelicals share. This tendency is based, it seems to me, on a profound confusion about the difference between God's law and our law. When Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that anger is murder and lustful intent is adultery, He's teaching us about God's law, not the secular law. God can enforce these standards because he is omniscient. He knows not just our outward actions, but the state of our hearts. Secular lawmakers and law enforcers are not omniscient. So our aspirations for human law need to be much more modest. This is the principal theme of the other article um, that is back there. Indeed, when we try to do too much with the law, as with prohibition in the 1920s and the attempt to ban abortion altogether in South Dakota a few years ago, it often backfires. Such efforts can, in fact, undermine the very moral norms they are intended to promote. I think the mismatch between evangelicals' emphasis on Jesus as Savior in the Church and their sweeping insistence on justice, or what I call, what I call Christ as King in the world, Is one reason that evangelical involvement in politics has been so controversial. A little of this bubbled out this past week, in my view, in the criticism evangelicals got for circling the wagons when it was reported that Sarah Palin's unmarried 17 year old daughter is five months pregnant. You may have noticed that I have not mentioned Jesus as teacher role model in connection with the evangelical reemergence. This isn't accidental. It seems to me that evangelicals have not emphasized this Jesus enough, either in our churches or in our involvement in the broader society. In the churches, we often seem to emphasize the moment of salvation so heavily, and I should stop here and say, the moment of salvation is critically important. Um, it is the bottom line, but it's not the only line, in, and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. but we, we tend to emphasize that so heavily that we forget that the Sermon on the Mount is a call to a life lived as best as we can in accordance with the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus tells us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to build our house upon a rock, he gives a parable about a man who builds a house on a rock as opposed to one who builds uh, uh, his house on sand. What that rock is, is doing the things that Jesus has been been teaching. The rock is doing the sayings of the Sermon on the Mount to a surprising extent. We also do not live as if Christ is truly our king. In our engagement with American politics, on, um, in our with American politics and, and law, on the other hand, we have often so heavily emphasized justice, Christ's role as king, that we seem to forget the importance of loving our neighbors as ourselves. The sense that something has been a little bit out of kilter is, in my view, what has been driving the much-discussed shift in many young evangelicals' thinking and the growing concern, often associated nationally with people like Rick Warren, to address issues like poverty, AIDS, the environment, and social justice. Increasing numbers of evangelicals are spending time in Africa and Central America before or after college and are working with organizations like Gary Haugen's International Justice Mission, which promotes the enforcement of laws against sex trafficking around the world. What this is, it seems to me, is an increased emphasis on Sermon on the Mount ethics, on Jesus as teacher and role model. Not just Jesus as Savior and King, not excluding Jesus as Savior and King, but also Jesus as teaching us how to live, what to do. I personally think this is a very exciting development, a shift that could have profound effects on American evangelicalism, not to mention American politics. Like any new development, it carries risks. As traditionalist evangelicals have pointed out, In response to many of these calls for social justice, Christian reform movements, and the primary example is the social gospel of the late 19th century, have often seemed to lose sight of the church and of Jesus as Savior in their emphasis on social justice. Truly living out the Sermon on the Mount would mean honoring Jesus as Savior, King, and role model in the church, and conveying this in our lives and actions in the broader society. The law would play a part in this, but in my view, only a modest part. Rather than trying to outlaw every new form of immorality, we should have more limited ambitions for the law, and in my view, much more ambitious ambitions for morality, for changing people's hearts. What might this look like? In my view, a more modest view of the role of the secular law would, be focus, would, focus, would mean focusing more on trying to make sure that our laws don't themselves encourage immoral behavior and that they help, at least in a small way, to foster relationship across the divides that have often fracture, fractured society in this country. As my friend and my co-blogger, Bill Stuntz, has written, This is what Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement were all about, about trying to establish relationship with people who had so fiercely resisted relationship with him. Although William Jennings Bryan was a little too optimistic about the capacity of the secular law, in my view, I have increasingly come to believe that he, too, was on the right track. He once said that, quote, law is but the crystallization of conscience, Moral sentiment must be created before it can express itself in the form of a statute, in the form of a statute. In the second part of that quotation in particular, I think there's a great deal of wisdom. If our goal is to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, both in the church and in the world, I think William Jennings Bryan and Martin Luther King would be a very good place to start. Thank you. And that's uh, the end of the reading.